invite you to open up to the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, probably a familiar text that uh, maybe you've even read in the last couple of days <clears throat> as a family, uh, but, but I want us to spend our time this morning in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and the title of the message is Jesus Christ Incarnate. This is really the hope and the, the reason that we celebrate Christmas, right? And as we've just finished celebrating this week, we come this morning to worship the Lord by exalting Him and reading His Word, celebrating the birth of Christ. Would you pray with me as we prepare to read God's Word? Father, we exalt You. We lift You high. Lord Jesus Christ, we exalt You. We lift You high. Holy Spirit, we exalt You. We lift You high. And we pray... Holy Father, that you would work in our midst this morning and that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak to us. Lord Jesus, we desire to exalt you this morning as we look at your word and see the wonderful and profound mystery that has been made known to us in you stepping out of heaven and becoming like man, taking upon flesh. God, would you would you speak to our hearts and challenge us with this? Eternal reality that Christ our Savior became man so that we might have eternal life through his death. Lord, we ask that you would open our minds to understand your word and our hearts to love your word and our eyes to see the truth of your word. And I pray, Father, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. In his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer writes of the Incarnation. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the Incarnation. That was a pretty amazing statement by J.I. Packer. Luke chapters 1 and 2 have been the source of our Advent study this year. But Luke 1 and 2 is only part of the narrative. As Advent culminates with Christ's arrival, it's important to remember that Luke, in the Luke-Acts narrative, is weaving together a tapestry of God's redemptive history through Christ's Incarnation. We have to read the rest of the Luke-Acts narrative to get the big picture of all that Christ has done and all that He's continued to do through the Holy Spirit by establishing the church. And then we're challenged at the end of of Acts, this second part to really what what I think Luke is setting up as as a trilogy. We're challenged when we get to the end of Acts with this question. What will God or what will He continue to do through His church? How will Jesus Christ continue to establish his kingdom and advance his kingdom through the ministry of the church? So as a church, we are the means by which God is carrying out his redemptive plan of salvation for mankind. That's important for us to see and to establish in the beginning this morning. You know, I've, I've seen Star Wars, The Force Awakens. On two occasions now. 
And uh, so those of you, I, I, at first I thought and I was worried about sharing this in the illustra- in, as an illustration because I, I didn't want to ruin it for anybody. But I thought, you know, those who are diehard fans, they've already seen it, and so I'm not going to ruin anything. So it's really, this isn't a spoiler alert. But one of my favorite lines in the entire Star Wars movie, The Force Awakens, comes at a point where, uh, where the two young new characters meet the aged Han Solo and all the things they thought were a myth about the Jedi and the dark side and Luke Skywalker, they thought all these things were a myth. They were just, they were just stories of the past. And that all comes to a head when Han Solo responds to their cynicism uh, with, it's true, all of it. The dark side, the Jedi, they're real. And the two characters are just kind of left like, ah, oh, really? This morning, as we read the birth narrative of Christ, we must be mindful of the cynicism of our day. We're not reading myth or fairy tale. We're reading historical reality. And Luke shares the historical details of Christ's miraculous birth. We're reading what Luke the historian writes for the church and and for, 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 for the communication of the gospel of Christ. We're reading about Christ's miraculous birth. And so God's sovereignty over Christ's birth fuels our mission, the church's mission in the world. I think we see that in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. So I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. This is on page 857 of the Chairback Bibles, uh, if you need it. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. The first point I I want us to see from this text this morning is that the sovereign decree is sovereignly decreed. The sovereign decree is sovereignly decreed. Luke's narrative masterfully introduces us into the world of Emperor Augustus and the world of divine purpose at the same time. In those days, verse 1, where it says, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. That phrase, in those days, links the narratives of John the Baptist's birth and Jesus' birth into one here. And this decree that went out into all the world for them to be registered was, was a decree that went out really through all of the Roman Empire, saying that all provincial citizens were to register for the purpose of taxes. Luke notes that this was the first registration in verse 2 of Quirinius, the governor, which is distinguished from the census that happened that he cites in Acts chapter 5, verse 37, which would have been the second census or registration uh, from Quirinius during his governorship. But the first census took place between 6 and 4 B.C. There's a lot of scholarly debate and dispute, controversy surrounding the census in its identity with Quirinius, the governor. But there's sufficient extra-biblical evidence to give weight to Luke's 
historical details that he presents here regarding the census. Among the evidence that's extra biblical is that Quirinius was appointed as administrative council to the emperor in 12 BC and could have easily been put into a position to administratively oversee a census. But I think there's some important historical things that we need to note about why Luke includes the census here and talks about Caesar Augustus and Quirinius. I think he gives us some noteworthy details. The first of which is Luke provides a contrast between the birth narratives of John the Baptist and the birth narrative of Jesus. In Luke chapter 1 verse 5, Luke points out, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, and he highlights the priest Zechariah and how John the Baptist would come through Elizabeth and Zechariah's offspring. John the Baptist's birth is located in the region of Judea under King Herod's rule. But John's ministry is viewed as a ministry to Israel. And Jesus' birth is set in the context of Caesar Augustus and Quirinius. And Caesar Augustus' rule is seen in verse 1 and verse 3, where Caesar Augustus sent out a decree that all the world should be registered. In verse 3, and all went to be registered. While John will, will call Israel to repentance, I think what Luke is showing us that Jesus is the one who's going to call all of the world to repentance. Second noteworthy detail regards the issue of, of power and status. Augustus and Quirinius are both portrayed with sovereign power in the birth narrative of Christ, whereas Herod is not portrayed with sovereign power. And the rest of the world, Joseph and Mary included, are portrayed as subservient to Augustus and to Quirinius. There are a couple of things just to note about Caesar Augustus as we understand the historical and the political layout of verses 1 through 7. Caesar Augustus was born as a man named uh, Gaius Octavian. He was the grandnephew of Julius Caesar, but he became heir to the throne of Julius Caesar when Julius Caesar was assassinated. And by 27 BC, he had reunited the once divided Rome and brought the appearance of peace to the Roman Empire. Augustus viewed himself, though, as a god. He certainly viewed himself as having divine characteristics. He boasted that he had found Rome built in brick, but that he left it built in marble. Augustus viewed himself as possessing these divine characteristics. There was one inscription from Halicarnassus that's now preserved in the British Museum of Natural History, which celebrates his reign, saying, Augustus is the father of his divine homeland, Rome, inherited from his father Zeus and the savior of the common folk. His foresight not only fulfilled the entreaties of all people, but surpassed them, making peace for land and sea, while cities bloom with order, harmony, and good seasons. There are fond hopes for the future of goodwill during the present which fills all men, so that they ought to bear pleasing sacrifices and hymns. Here's the inscription. Here are the thoughts that Augustus, Caesar Augustus, has of himself and the view that he has, as well as others in the kingdom of Rome. This is the view they have of Caesar Augustus. And this is the political and historical context in which Jesus was born. 
But it's not coincidental that the Prince of Peace, as Isaiah 9, 6 would call Jesus, would enter humanity during the reign of the emperor known as the emperor of peace. And I I think the contrast couldn't be greater. A myriad inscription also of Caesar Augustus read, Divine Augustus Caesar, son of a god, imperator of Rome, imperator of land and sea, the benefactor and savior of the whole world. Another inscription dated to 9 B.C., discovered at Priene, hails Augustus as a god whose birthday signaled the beginning of good news for the world. Luke sets the angel's annunciation of Christ's birth as the true savior and sovereign king in contrast with the world's sovereign king. Jesus is the one who truly brings good news for all the world in spite of the inscriptions that are made on Caesar Augustus's behalf. In fact, this is, these are the words that come off the lips of the angel in Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, just a few verses ahead. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Luke paints Augustus. As the unknowing agent of God. He exerts his sovereign authority over all the world. Yet his sovereign worldly decree is subservient actually to God's cosmic sovereign decree. As we look at the text we can see with perfect hindsight. That God sovereignly orchestrates the events of history to accomplish his divine plan. Joseph and Mary's journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem was no accident. It fit with God's perfect plan. You see, God demonstrates His absolute authority over Christ's birth, even by working within the cultural mandates of rulers to accomplish redemptive history. And I want you to know something. God still does this today. The same way God works in Joseph and Mary's day is the same way that God is orchestrating and bringing His redemptive plan to fulfillment. Nothing, nothing can thwart God's plan. For Joseph and Mary, we see that in verses 4 and 5. We see that civil obedience leads to messianic fulfillment for Joseph and Mary. And consequently, for the rest of humanity. Luke, as a historian, inserts another important detail in the narrative here in verses 4 and 5. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. The requirement of the census that causes Joseph to report to Bethlehem is actually according to God's plan. It's been forecasted, prophesied in Scripture long ahead of time. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, the prophet Micah writes, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. You see, Joseph was of the house and lineage of David, and and Bethlehem was the city of King David's birth. 
1 Samuel chapter 16 and 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 12 through 16, and verse 58 of, of 1 Samuel chapter 17, detail of David's being raised in Bethlehem. But because Mary was with child and betrothed to Joseph, she travels with him. We see this in verse 5. Mary goes with him to be registered, his betrothed, who is with child. The word betrothal is significant. The reason it's significant is because it guards the integrity of the Immaculate Conception and the virgin birth. This means their marriage hadn't been consummated yet. This is... This is the miracle of Christ's incarnation that Mary conceived without the mediation of a human father. His birth, Jesus' birth, was the result of God's supernatural overshadowing of Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit, as Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38 records for us. This is the historical reality that Luke records for us, as well as that which was attested to by the apostles. This is what prophecy and, and God's redemptive plan has been, has been pointing and working toward. And this means that inside of Mary's womb, both humanity and divinity were uniquely united as at no other time in human history. And this is a profound mystery of our salvation. And this mystery has been made known to us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. There was a village that had a statue that was so immense that no one could see exactly what it represented. So someone finally miniaturized the statue so everyone could see the person that it honored. The church father, Origen, said, that's exactly what God did in his son. Paul tells us Christ is the visible image of the invisible God in Colossians 1. And in Christ, we have, we have God in a comprehensible way. In Christ, we have God's own personal and definitive visit to our planet. God's redemptive plan, you see, involves his interaction with humanity. It even involves his provision to work within the authority of government. I want you to know this isn't a mute point for, for Christians Christians who live in civil obedience to the government will demonstrate the gospel to our neighbors, will demonstrate the gospel to our co-workers. This is according to God's will for our lives. This is why Mary and Joseph take off and they go and travel to Bethlehem. Because as we see with Mary and Joseph, God works within the confines of government And he can even use the unbending policies of government to accomplish the advent of Christ. As Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, Paul tells us, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. What I hope we can see this morning is that even kings and nations are made ultimately to serve God's greater purpose in the world. We live in a country with great freedoms. We ought to be using that freedom to proclaim the gospel of Christ and and to evangelize the lost. You see, the church is called to live as ambassadors for Christ. 
We are the outpost of God's kingdom at work in the world. We too should strive to advance the gospel through civil obedience, just as we see Mary and Joseph uh, exemplifying for us obedience and, and following with civil obedience to what the government is demanding of them. We too, church, are to live in such a way that we are respecting the government under which we live and the authority under which we live, yet at the same time living faithfully for the gospel of Christ. And using the freedoms that we have in order to advance that gospel and the gospel call to advance the message and the hope of the gospel. This happens as we advocate for people like Fatty, as, as you know, is, is in prison and we think wrongfully and unjustly in prison. But this happens in so many ways and, and so many opportunities we're given. We are given so many opportunities Yet I think oftentimes we fail to recognize what God is calling us to do in the midst of the opportunities that he gives us and provides us. Thirdly, this morning, I I want you to see a humble birth for the divine king. Luke is showing us that our divine king was born in a humble way. God's entrance into the world wasn't as many expected In fact, if we were writing the narrative and coming up with the storyline, this isn't at all how we would make things go down. This isn't at all how we would write the story. God doesn't operate in accordance, though, with our expectations. And an in-depth study of Christ's birth narrative will challenge our preconceived notions of Christ's birth. From the date to what place the place might have looked like, to how the scene even unfolded in that night as Jesus was born. Verse 6 says, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Even this phrase, and while they were there, indicates something that I think we oftentimes overlook. Sometimes we imagine that they arrived in Bethlehem on the eve of Jesus' birth, going from place to place in the cold rain, knocking on the hotel doors, and, and, and finding out that all the hotels have no vacancy until they finally arrive at this last one-shot deal, and it's this broken-down stable in the back of the property that no one's been in for quite some time. Maybe that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but I don't think that there was a, I know, there, there wasn't some villainous innkeeper that turned Joseph and Mary away with a scouring look on his face. In fact, the word that's used here for inn isn't the word for commercial inn at all. In fact, a different word is used for that. Luke chapter 10, verse 34, the parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke describes what that commercial inn would look like. It's a different word. He uses the word for commercial inn in the, in the parable of the Good Samaritan. The room that they found was probably an adjoining room that connected to a house where animals were kept. Maybe it had kind of a half wall where the animals could actually look in the house. They had most likely been in Bethlehem for some time prior to Mary's delivery. And when the time came for her to give birth, they had to find a place that wasn't so crowded. And as much as we think we know, we actually probably don't know what the room or the stable that Jesus was born in looked like. We can guess. But regardless, describing what the birthplace looked like wasn't really Luke's intention at all. 
Luke's point is to contrast the lowly entrance of Messiah in the town of David with the idea of a birth fit for a king. Jesus, the true king of the lineage of David, was born into primitive and humble circumstances. He tells us a detail in verse 7. They laid him, she laid him in a manger. That's a feed trough. How fitting for the Christ child to be laid, the king of creation, to be laid in a feed trough. We read in verse 7 that Mary gave birth to her firstborn son, As the firstborn son, Jesus would possess the birthright. And through the lineage of his father Joseph to David's throne, he would be the rightful heir to the throne of David. This is why it was significant that he would be born in the lineage of David. This is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy concerning a king that would rise up in David's place and would rule eternally. And also the firstborn son was to be called holy to the Lord. This too was fitting for the Christ child. Verse 23 of chapter 2 in Luke says, As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Mary would go and would devote the Christ child to the temple, to the Lord. And then she wrapped him in swaddling clothes or cloths and laid him in a manger. This too is a fulfillment of of the angel's announcement to the shepherds in chapter 2, verse 12, where the angels tell the shepherds, and this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Jesus, our Messiah, the Son of God, entered humanity in the most humble way, with the most humble beginnings. In fact, we know about Joseph and Mary that they offered the most menial offering acceptable in the temple worship when they went to bring baby Jesus, right? What did they bring? A pair of turtle doves or pigeons. They brought two doves. And as I, as I, kind of, as I thought and chewed upon this passage and seeking to apply it in my own life, you know, the things we often find ourselves striving after in this life are not at all what's significant. What we learn from Mary and Joseph is that God looks at the heart. What a tremendous responsibility Mary and Joseph were entrusted with. They weren't just parents. They were parents of our Lord and Savior. I would challenge us as parents, don't underestimate your responsibility. Whether or not we have the means to provide for our children with all the many material things that, that, that we see out here today, that it's not significant. But whether or not we demonstrate a faithfulness to God and a love for God is what's most significant in this life. Don't miss the eternal gift that Christ's birth made a reality. While you've given your children life, Only Christ can give our children eternal life. So we must teach them and demonstrate for them all that we can in every way that we can, directing them towards God's ways so that God will do what only God can do in saving their souls. I think the humble means of Christ's incarnation demonstrates the importance of lowliness in the kingdom of heaven. 
Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 of Christ, he says to the church, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. Listen, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Similarly, as God the Son came through the incarnation, I want you to understand that He calls us to be incarnational in the lives of people in the world around us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, The incarnation is the ultimate reason why the service of God cannot be divorced from the service of man. In Bugari, Uganda, one of our mission teams visited an unreached people group named the Kiramajong. The Kiramajong are a tribe known as cattle herders. But in Bugari town, they were scavengers. They would send their children out into the dumps to search for food and other items that people throw away, things that they could use. And until five years ago, Bugari Baptist Church was unable to reach the Kiramajong people. The Kiramajong tribe were a violent tribe. They didn't want to have anything to do or any contact with the locals of Bugari. Bugari Baptist Church had ministered to a few children through their school, but they had had no success in reaching the tribe of the Kiramajong. So one afternoon, Pastor George decided to take our group to share the gospel with the Kiramajong. Now, we didn't know all of the background necessarily about, uh, about their, um, their violence, but we did know that they were scavengers and that often you would see the children at the dump. And so Pastor George decided to take our group to share the gospel with the Kiramajong. And one afternoon, we traveled deep into their village and we gained an audience with the entire tribe. And then we preached the gospel. We preached the gospel first in English. And then it was translated into Lugandan. And from Lugandan, it was translated into another language. And from that language, it was translated into a language that was very similar to the tribal tongue of the Kiramajong. And on that day, there were some of the Kiramajong tribe who professed faith in Christ. Some believed in the gospel. They came to faith. Today, though, through Crosspoint Sacrificial Partnership and through the work of, of others, Bugari Baptist Church has been able to purchase land and been able to purchase cattle and then to give employment to some of the Kiramajong tribe. Others from the Kiramajong tribe gather regularly with Bugari Baptist Church to worship the Lord and to, to live in community with the saints of Bugari Baptist Church. And I'll submit to you all of this because one man, God gave one man, a desire to get involved in the lives and share the gospel with the Kiramajong people. That's amazing. It's amazing. But listen, it's not as amazing as the journey of our Savior, the journey that He made from heaven to earth to become incarnational. The Son of God knew what He was doing. He knew where He was going. He knew what the sacrifice would be. He journeyed from heaven to earth on a mission to save the human race. And at Christmas, we celebrate 
this Messiah's coming. We celebrate his birth, his entrance, his taking upon himself flesh. In the incarnation, get this, God, creator of the universe, became like man. He humbled himself. He went to the dump. And he reached humanity with his life. The question I want to ask us this morning to consider is, do you know this Messiah, the one who stepped out of heaven to become man, to identify with humanity? Do you know this Jesus? Do you know the Christ child? Do you believe that God the Son became flesh? If you're a believer, are you sharing this hope of good news with others? Perhaps that's a commitment that you need to make today, that you'll be more vocal. As you reflect upon Christ's incarnation, that you'll be more vocal in sharing the hope of the gospel with those that God has given you influence with and those that you come in contact with. And if you don't know this Jesus that we've been talking about and you want to know more about Christ as Savior, I'd love to speak with you about what it means to to have a relationship with Christ, to know Christ as Savior. So this morning, I want to close our time in prayer. And I want to invite you to consider your own heart before the Lord. Consider how God may be challenging you in specific ways that God is desiring to use you and to use our church to spread and proclaim the gospel of Christ. Or maybe this morning for you, it, it, means, uh, it, it means that you, you need to research more about what it means to have a relationship with Christ. Maybe that's where you're at. Whatever the case, I want to encourage you to respond as the Lord's leading you. If you want to come forward and pray at the steps, you can do that. If you want to come forward and let me pray with you, I would love to pray with you. However the Lord is leading you, you respond to his leading this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come before you, we are overwhelmed at your grace toward us. Father, though we don't deserve the salvation that you give us, you have stepped into our humanity. You have identified with us in the person of Jesus Christ, your son, who took upon himself flesh, becoming like man, And died on the cross so that he might redeem us and save our souls. So, Father, this morning we rejoice at the hope of our salvation. We rejoice at the truth of Christ's incarnation. And, God, we rejoice that you have made a way for us to experience life eternal and joy and peace as no other can provide. So this morning, Lord, would you strengthen us to respond to your hand at work in our lives and to walk by faith following after you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.